Welcome to Her and Boss, the podcast designed to help you find your inner entrepreneur. Her and Boss is brought to you by recent graduates, Anissa, Lucy, Megan, Ben, Sarah, and me, Nikki, as we enter our careers and speak to the inspiring women who can help us along the way. Hey everyone, this is your host Nikki, and I'm so excited to be back with season two of the podcast. I'm especially looking forward to letting you hear the first episode where we get to understand a little bit more about entrepreneurship from the other side with the help of a venture capitalist investor. I speak with Yvonne Bajella, who is an early stage investor for Impact X and works with startups across Europe, Middle East and Africa. She has previously guest lectured at City University London and features on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. She talks to us about her career journey, from how her dad was one of her earliest role models to navigating post-grad life to where she is today. Yvonne also helps us understand how investors and entrepreneurs can work together and shares some top tips for entrepreneurs who are hoping to find an investor to work with. This episode is sponsored both by RISE, created by Barclays, and Barclays Eagle Labs. RISE is a global community of the world's top fintech innovators on a mission to connect technology, talent, and trends, and to accelerate innovation and growth in the financial services industry. Eagle Labs are a national network that supports individuals, businesses, and corporates innovate and grow across a broad range of different sectors and with varied capabilities. I hope you enjoy. Morning, Yvonne. Morning. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Are you ready for some quick fire questions? I am. I am very much ready. All right. So the first one is, if you had to delete all but three apps on your phone, which three would you keep? So I'd keep Pocket because I'm always reading newspaper articles and can't always read them when I find them so Mm -hmm. I would want to save them other app is whatsapp so I use that to communicate with um, pretty much everyone Um, I also use it to communicate with my family abroad so that's one that I'll definitely Mm -hmm. keep and the final one I would say is online banking because I just can't see myself going on desktop and and (laughs) using um, using the app yeah definitely I think those are some practical answers when I was thinking about this yesterday one that I definitely have to keep is like a city mapper or a maps app because I'm honestly hopeless with directions but I agree with oh yeah that. I saw mm-hmm. my actually <laughs> <laughs> right so the next one is if you could eat one thing for the rest of your life what would it be oh my god it would have to be plantain um I don't know if you know what plantain is but it's essentially a member of the plantain family it can be boiled fried grilled it's very sweet I just love it I can't get enough of it yeah there's a period of, in my life where I'd eat it like four times a week (laughs) oh wow jealous no I love plantain but follow-up question is it plantain or plantain because I've heard both yeah so Caribbeans tend to call it plantain um whereas Africans call it plantain so I would say plantain okay there (laughs) you go it's an ongoing debate I've learned something new already (laughs) (laughs) and then last question is what was the last show you binge watched uh Greenleaf on Netflix oh I've not actually heard of that one what's it about so it's about a US um, family. They run a church and there's a lot uh-huh. of controversy um, every single episode. Um, yeah, it's just really interesting. Ooh. It's a nice, easy watch. Nice. I'll have to start that one next. I have to confess, I've um, I've started watching Love Island USA recently because oh. um, I've, I've not got my fix of the UK version this summer. But I know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I'd miss it. So I was actually really sad when it didn't come up. <laughs> it's like my <laughs> I know same and I had thought as well it's like the almost the perfect show for a lockdown because they just stay in the same house together so I feel like it could work yeah no definitely 
So I'm so excited to have you on today. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation, particularly because most of the people that we've featured on the podcast before have all been entrepreneurs. And I feel like we get kind of a look at entrepreneurship from the other side to have you on. But before we kind of go into your current work as a VC investor, could you kind of walk us through your career journey from, you know, as far back as kind of school and university to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess like taking it right back to when I was in school, growing up, my dad would always say, Avon, knowledge is power. And so I really took my education seriously to the mm-hmm. point where on Saturdays where my neighbours would be playing out, I would be sitting at home with my dad and reading the Financial Times, like learning mm-hmm. lessons on economics, the importance of money management. And that really sparked my interest in economics and just, you know, what was happening in the financial um, economy and so on um, so throughout school I always knew that you know maths was one of my strongest subjects uh, so I knew that I wanted to go into the world of finance so that that really did help in that I, I had a focus um, of finance but I didn't know exactly what area of finance mm-hmm. I wanted to go into so I went on to study uh, economics at university, which was basically maths anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of, of maths to it. And being at university during the financial crisis was actually a really good time because a lot of what I was learning was actually being put into practice. The economic theory didn't necessarily work, <laughs> but it was very interesting to, to have those conversations around how what we were seeing in textbook is actually, you know, relative to, to what's happening in the world um, at that particular moment in time. But coming out of university, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I wanted to stick within the world of finance. So I actually was very fortunate to start my credit Goldman Sachs and, you know, working in investment banking. I think it's a really great place to start your career because you're mm-hmm. you're really given the foundations as to foundational skills on how to present, you know, how to operate in the workplace and so on. And so that for me was a really valuable experience. But at the same time, I realized it wasn't for me because I knew that I wanted to work more closely with companies. Obviously, being a, an analyst, you don't get that exposure until like maybe four years later when yeah. you're an associate. And so I knew that I had to leave and my parents obviously weren't too happy about that. You know, as a graduate, they just want you to be in a stable position. Um, yeah. As it was back in their day, they were like, no, just stay there one more year. Like, <laughs> more years. And I was like, no, like I really knew that this is not what I wanted to do. So for me, I just made the decision that, you know, I want to work more closely with businesses. So I'm going to leave. I'm going to work either in a consulting role um, or a strategy arm. And that's exactly what I did. So I was very fortunate to go and work for a large insurer called Catlin. Um, in their strategy team and that that was really interesting and I took away a lot of skills I did take a a huge pay cut but for me I I didn't see that as as a huge issue because I'm someone that's always seen my career from the longer term view Um, Mm -hmm. and I'll be getting great experience Um, but I would say that you know a lot of times when we come out of university we feel like we should have it all figured out and I think that you know I guess what my career shows is that it's okay to start a position and, and move on um, into a different area. You don't need to have it all figured out. Um, so a few years later, I was actually presented with the opportunity to join Mitsui, which is a Japanese investment company. And I was working there, uh, you know, where I was heading up investments for Europe, Middle East and Africa. That mm-hmm. was honestly a really pivotal moment in my career. Um, so I was living and working in various countries, Kenya, Israel, spent some time in Japan so it was just a really incredible experience and you know fast forward four four years later I joined ImpactX and Mm -hmm. you know 
I think that if I didn't gain that investment experience at Mitsu, I probably wouldn't be in the position I am in today. Um, and so I took a leap. I didn't really know what I was getting into when I joined Mitsui, but it's all paid off. That's fascinating. So those kind of steps where you were leaving one company and going to another, how did you kind of get the confidence to do that? And how did you know it was right for you? And then I guess as well, you saying that your parents were like, oh no, please, Yvonne, stay in that job. <laughs> I think a lot of people can kind of relate to that because especially once you've got a place at a graduate scheme, which they're kind of hard to come by anyway, it can just feel so much easier to stay in that role. How did you kind of handle all of those different maybe pressures and aspects around you? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I'm I'm quite stubborn. <laughs> so I'm quite sure that helps, yeah. <laughs> um, but I just knew it wasn't for me. And I was very, very fortunate to have people around me at the time who, they weren't my mentors um, formally, but they were people that I looked up to. And seeing them change positions, reinvent themselves into a bit different in- industries really gave me that view that your career is a marathon, not a sprint. And so even though I, I had entered banking, that doesn't mean that I had to stick in banking. I could move on to the next thing and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so it was for me, like seeing people take risk in their careers made me get comfortable with taking a risk in my career. And I'm glad I did because, you know, some people are very fortunate from the moment they leave university, they're in a career that they stay in for the next 50 years. Um, but then I've had examples, you know, I've always had people examples in my life of people that have moved on and really been able to, find their feet in a different industry than what what they originally started out in um and so you don't necessarily need to have it figured out and I think having those examples is is what really helped me and I think if I wasn't bold in in taking those risks throughout my career I probably wouldn't have found um my love and passion for VC and the, the world of entrepreneurship yeah, I really like that, what you just said there, that your career is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think when you're younger, at least for me, it did feel like a sprint, kind of going <laughs> from university and you see your friends getting jobs and you're like, uh, I don't have a job, what am I going to do? But yeah, you do kind of need to take your time and explore where your passions lie, really. And you brought it up there, but I wanted to kind of go into it more, because when we first met, you spoke about the importance of taking risks in your career, but taking calculated risks. Could you explain a bit more by kind of what you meant by that yeah so just for some perspective I grew up investing in financial markets at the age of 16 so I knew what it meant to take risks at a very early age Um, and so for me when I talk about taking calculated risk it just means you know really assessing the pros and cons of every decision that we make and being comfortable with those risk factors because let's face it like every decision that we make has some sort of element of risk and you just have to be sure that whatever risk that you are taking you can afford to take those risks um so it's just about making smart decisions and not just taking risks without giving them much thought yeah that makes sense um how did you get into investing when you were 16 that's incredible through my dad like my dad (laughs) (laughs) as I mentioned like he would you know sit with me would read the financial times or read the economist and so from a very early age I knew about financial markets and I had Mm -hmm. that that firm understanding um and so you know he he opened an account and he said you know what stock do you want to invest in and Mm. we just used to play around um (laughs) at the time it was only 100 pounds which obviously seemed like a lot of money to me Uh, um it was just it was just a great way to learn as well um definitely going to replicate that with my kids yeah I think that's a great idea I feel like people don't really learn about investing until much later on um do you think those experiences have kind of influenced where you've ended up today oh 100 percent I think um it gave me that very firm foundation and an understanding of financial markets and really how 
the financial markets can play a major role in impacting and influencing the way in which we live as individuals, you know, it can really empower communities and so on. And that's the way I've always seen it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess to kind of take a step back, could you explain what a venture capitalist is and the type of investing you do now for your job versus kind of retail investors who can invest in markets, as you were saying? Yeah, so venture capitalists, um, put very simply, they they invest in companies, typically in exchange for an equity mm-hmm. share in the business. And along with that, they will look to provide support, whether it be, you know, access to their network, whether it be help with recruitment. Um, you know, obviously, every venture capital firm operates differently, but I like to think of it as almost like a hand of help where, wherever it's required. So... How it differs from, say, public market stocks is Mm -hmm. when you're investing in a venture capital firm, the company is not public. um, And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to getting form some sort of relationship with the entrepreneur and and invest in the company. Whereas public stocks, you can and and it's quite illiquid as well when you're investing in venture capital, because typically you're not going to see a return for at least five to 10 years. Mm Whereas public stocks, you can pretty much in most cases exchange on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of myth bust like a little bit further, when you say illiquid, what you're trying to say, I guess, is that once if a venture capitalist invests in a firm, they're not expecting to make that money or that cash back immediately, but they have an equity share in the company. What doesn't having an equity share mean? What's the kind of value in that? Yeah. So let's say um, an equity, uh, a VC will take maybe, mm-hmm. you know, 10 to 20% of your business. They own that stake in your business. And it's so it's there they have an incentive to to see the company Mm -hmm. do really well and with that they want to provide as much support as possible in order to do that um and when i say it's a liquid you know typically venture capitalists will seek to um, achieve an exit and by that i mean liquidation event where they actually Mm -hmm. get generate a return through an acquisition so that's where a larger company may acquire the the shares of the company and buy out the, the vcs or it could be uh, an initial public offering. So like we saw Uber, for example, mm-hmm. go on an IPO. That's another way for um, venture capitalists to, to generate a return. And that takes time, which is why, you know, you're not going to get any money. Well, this, a general expectation is that you're not going to get any money back for, let's say, at least five to ten years. Okay, yeah. And I like the way you described it there as it's not just a relationship where the VC is giving the entrepreneur money. The entrepreneur is also getting some support. So what's the kind of structure of like a VC firm? Is it like there's the investors and then there's the some, I don't know, maybe consultants who help with whatever the entrepreneurs need help with? It really varies. I think every firm mm-hmm. is different. Some firms, you know, have a particular expertise, for example, in talent. So they will help in helping the companies find the best of the best talent and people to work with. Um, you know, some firms, it's it's really the network that they're they're able to share. So introducing you to potential customers or other investors, it really does vary. Um, I think more and more what we're seeing is that that value add role is is very important um, mm-hmm. because let's face it, it's a decision as well. So it's not just me as an investor that's making a decision to invest in the company, but the entrepreneur also has to make a decision on what investor to allow to invest in their company because. Like mm-hmm. I said, it's very much a long-term relationship, five to 10 years. You want to make sure that whoever is investing in your company, you're aligned with and you get along with. Yeah, definitely. Um, and do you want to tell us a little bit about the firm that you work for now, so Impact X, and how it differentiates itself from other VC firms? 
Yeah, so Impact Tech's UK-based venture capital fund. So we focus on underrepresented entrepreneurs. And when we say underrepresented, it's typically entrepreneurs that you wouldn't typically find in a venture capital portfolio, um, simply because I'm sure you're very much aware of the die statistics of less than 1% oh, yes. <laughs> has gone into black founders over the last three decades. And you know, very similar statistics when it comes to female founders and so on. And so we're really trying to bridge that gap. Um, and and that's essentially the role we're playing within the ecosystem in backing incredible underrepresented entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, even, you know, the entrepreneurs that we've had on the podcast in our first season, a lot of them have brought up the lack of diversity. And it's not just gender diversity, but as you say, you know, black founders are even less supported than women and so then you know black female founders it just it it is dire as you say um do you think that the kind of statistics we see that we there's kind of a lack of female or um, entrepreneurs from ethnic minority backgrounds is because these types of people aren't trying to be entrepreneurs or do you think the problem comes because they're not getting the support they need from traditional vc firms i think it's it's more to do with, um, I, I guess you have to look at the ecosystem at all levels. So the venture capital industry is known for being an old boys club and that, that is changing. But historically, it's been, you know, firms have been extremely small and exclusive. Many firms have less than 10 people, for example. And so they tend to be comprised of white male partners and they usually retire late. Many of them have been in their partner positions for many years. And because mm-hmm. of that, you know, hiring turnover is low. and there's also an ingrained bias within the industry whereby people are going to invest in mm-hmm. people that they can resonate with, right? So if yeah. you are a you know white male, then you're typically going to go for white males um, unless you have that that awareness of the conscious bias. And so um, that's, that's part of the issue that currently exists within the ecosystem. There's data that suggests that female investors for example are two to three times more likely to invest in female founders which Mm -hmm. makes sense right um i think we have started to see a shift but of course it's it's these people essentially that are in investment decision making positions if they're not you know proactively going out there and seeking those entrepreneurs because there's no shortage of entrepreneurs there's no pipeline yeah my perspective um then they're just not going to get funded and do you think this would be an interesting one to ask, actually. Do you, have you seen kind of more, I guess, entrepreneurs who are really making progress in the last few months? I feel like from what I've seen, loads of people while being in lockdown have de- really decided to take that step and start their business or kind of maybe, you know, their employment status has changed. They're really taking those kind of leaps of faith and those confident next steps. Have you seen any of that? Yeah, definitely. And, and it's a really exciting period. Obviously, you know, an unfortunate period but at the same time like mm-hmm. so much innovation is created during times of economic downturns um so if you look at companies such as instagram and um, uber for example these were mm-hmm. companies that were created in the midst of the financial crisis in 2008 and i think what we're seeing is is something very similar whereby you know economic crisis creates a number of issues and so it's an opportunity for entrepreneurs to spot gaps in the market particularly where a lot of companies are scaling back on their spending and companies, you know, want to spend less. So there's, it, it breeds an opportunity for, for innovation. And, um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs I've seen during this period, honestly, so much admiration. And, you know, what we're seeing is a lot of interesting things are being created during this period to tackle some problems. Um, so I'm really excited to see um, some of those companies really 
you know really grow and expand from here on yeah that's awesome and for people who kind of are at the start of their entrepreneurship journey and haven't got to the stage where they need investment yet or vc investment what is that process like from start to finish do you are you actively looking for new opportunities for investments or do you kind of expect entrepreneurs to come to you and approach you about their business it's a bit of both um so i'm always proactively looking for for companies to invest in um and at the same time you know we have a very open process and one thing that we don't believe in is warm introductions so you can very much apply on our website and we will essentially um respond to everyone that that reaches out to us um and if it's suitable you know if it fits within our criteria we'll have a call with the entrepreneurs so i encourage every entrepreneur to apply um if they are seeking seeking funding um, and they fit within our criteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that concept of warm introductions is that basically where do you th- well are there VC firms who will only really consider people who are within their existing networks? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, um, I guess if you look at the venture capital ecosystem as it exists today, a lot of entrepreneurs are a lot of VC firms. Uh, don't actually have any way to contact them on their website now that is changing a lot of vc firms operate like that and so if you don't get an introduction through one of their portfolio companies or you know someone that is within their network then there's essentially no way to get access to them and what that does (laughs) is it does make it um, an unfair process um for entrepreneurs that don't necessarily have access to those networks and so that's why we felt it was really important to drop the whole warm introductions thing and Mm -hmm. make our our process accessible yeah definitely I think that's a great idea I think something that comes out in the research when you look at these stats between kind of the traditional like white male entrepreneur and then underrepresented entrepreneurs it is you know lots of stuff comes out particularly for women around confidence and I think having those barriers where it's not kind of an open application process or, you know, please get in contact with us. It makes it so much harder to kind of take that first step and think that you'll be good enough. And it's kind of, you know, a similar thing is that stat you always see about how men will apply for a job, even if they don't meet all the requirements, whereas women need to meet everything. It's you kind of need to make it as as open as possible to give everyone a fair chance. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, It's absolutely key. We really want to see change. And what do you kind of look for in entrepreneurs? What stage are entrepreneurs typically at? Or are you kind of open to early stage and later stage? Well, I always say it's never too early to, to meet with an entrepreneur. I'm always very interested in connecting um, as early as possible, really. And then, you know, tracking the progress of, of the entrepreneur over time. Um, but we typically invest at the seed and series A stages. So that's where, you know, the company may have some early traction. They've demonstrated and validated that their product or service is one that consumers or you know clients need and want, which I think is absolutely key because as investors, like who are you know, I always say that we can't predict the market. Like mm-hmm. it, it's always better to have for companies to have that validation um, and and prove that there's people that need and want to use their product or service as opposed to us making a, a guess. Now that's not to say that. Mm-hmm. we won't invest you know there are some vcs out there that do invest simply on on ideas alone um but you know for us we're very much interested in companies that have that that early traction what what's the kind of best way to prove that 
there is a demand for whatever product you're putting out because this is something that we've heard entrepreneurs say in the podcast before um, and we also we did a mini-sode last season where we kind of walk through the stages of how to pitch for investment and obviously one of the big things is doing your research knowing your customer what kind of makes the most impact for you as a VC actually having it in the house of customers I think that a lot of times um entrepreneurs believe things such as you know having a waiting list or you know having people sign up to your newsletter is is proof of, of validation but it's not because you can have one million people sign up to your waiting list but essentially like does that mean that they actually go on to use it maybe they don't or you know you may have a great product in your mind but until you actually get it in the hands of users you don't know if people actually want it and so I always say like don't focus so much on trying to build the perfect product get it into hands of users as quick as possible and iterate from there like get feedback figure out what works figure out what doesn't work um, and you could do that very cheap on a very cheap um, basis. And so you don't necessarily really need to raise m- money in order to do that. Obviously, um, you know, some industries such as pharmaceuticals and so on, you very much need capital before you can um, actually get something in the hands of users. But, you know, where technology is so accessible now, there's no code tools for entrepreneurs that are not necessarily um, technical. There's nothing to, to stop you from going out there and getting that early validation. Um, a great example is a company that I was recently speaking to. They have generated over two hundred thousand dollars in revenue simply by using an Excel spreadsheet. And they were selling their clients with an Excel spreadsheet and using WhatsApp to speak to their customers. That for me is great. That's that's that for me is highlights how resourceful the entrepreneur was and what they were doing is raising capital because they've proven the demand for their product. Now, all they needed to do was raise capital so that they could actually build the technology mm-hmm. and provide the service that they're already providing via WhatsApp and Excel spreadsheets. Um, and so don't focus so much on raising money. Just focus on, you know, really creating something of value and the money will follow. Yeah, that's I mean, that's so resourceful and creative. And it, it's come up before where having an MVP or a minimum viable product can really make all the difference because you can get your product in the hands of customers and you can really show that people want it. And how important is the entrepreneur versus the product? So in one of our episodes, we talked about how with kind of social media and all of this technology, people can really buy into a person and buy into the brand. Do you have that same focus or for you, is it more on the product and the success of the product or service that the entrepreneur is working on? The product is important, but I always say 100% entrepreneur at the very early stages, like building a startup is so tough. You can have a great idea, but if you don't have the ability to execute on it, you know, then then you really have nothing because, you know, building a company is all about in the execution and carrying that vision through even when times get tough. And that for me is why I always try to spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs to, to really understand, you know, what's driving them and how obsessed they are with tackling the problem that they're trying to tackle because ultimately you know, taking on money from venture capital, it's a long-term game, as I mentioned earlier. Mm. You know, we're not going to receive returns for at least five to 10 years. And so we want to know that you're passionate about it. And also that, you know, when curveballs come their way, they're able to to, to manage it. Um, and so that, that's why that's the team is so important because particularly at the very early stages, until you've really validated and, and proven that, you know, the product or service is something that you didn't want, a lot of companies actually pivot 
you know, because they realize, mm-hmm. okay, this is not necessarily what customers wanted. Let's try and do something else. And it's great entrepreneurs that do that um, as opposed to the product. Yeah. And I guess carrying on from that, what, what kind of top tips would you have for young entrepreneurs or early stage entrepreneurs? I would echo what I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs become so fixated on the idea of raising capital, but raising capital is not a metric for success. Just because you've raised five million, that doesn't mean that your startup's success. We still got to go and do the work. And so instead of spending time trying to raise capital, really just focus on spending time with your customers and creating something of value where possible, be resourceful and try and get the products in the hand of users uh, before you actually go out and raise capital. Because actually, if you do that and you validate the product or service and prove that it's something that you know customers need or want, it puts you in a much better position as well when you're going out to raise capital. You'll get much better terms, less dilution. Um, and so why wouldn't you do that? So that would be my mm-hmm. always focus on creating something of value and the money will definitely follow. Yeah, I guess it goes back to what we were saying about it. It can it's so much about the person. I've got two more questions. One is around your biggest learnings from your career. So obviously, you know, we have young people who listen to the podcast who want to be entrepreneurs, but then equally we have people who are in uni or leaving uni and trying to decide is it entrepreneurship or is it a, a career in a corporate for me? So it would be good to hear your your biggest learns. Yeah, I would say that my biggest learn has been um, don't be afraid to take risks within within your career. So don't be afraid to try things out. If they fail, that's fine. Like just move on to the next thing and really just, you know, in every single situation, any single um, experience that you take on, try to see what you learn from the experience. Even if you do fail, see what you can learn from the experience because every, every single thing that we do comes with learnings. Um, and so don't beat yourself up. Don't be afraid to take a risk. I think that it's easier to take a risk in your 20s than it is to take in your 30s. And just have the mindset that, you know, when you are taking risks, you don't really have much to lose. Um, that's, mm-hmm. that's how I tend to see things. And, you know, that's why a lot of investors, for example, say that they prefer second time entrepreneurs because they've been through it before. They've, they've got those learnings and you know hopefully those learnings will help them in in building a better business um than they did the last time um the other thing i would say is that you know whatever it is within you that is um is unique and what you're really passionate about tap into that you know Mm -hmm. don't do don't listen to the voices of this world like tap into what really interests you what you're passionate about um oftentimes it's those things that that will lead you to to your destiny I like that. I think that's, those are some really good tips. And then our final question, which we finish every episode off with is what gives you confidence? What gives me confidence is knowing that, you know, I bring value to the table. And I think that Mm -hmm. early on in my career, I used to have imposter syndrome. I used to like Mm -hmm. battle in my mind saying, you know, should I really be here? But I think throughout my career, one thing that I've, I've come to realize is I bring a lot of value to the table and that gives me confidence, confidence in that, you know, whatever realm I'm in, I have a voice and I'm going to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Even just hearing you say that gave me confidence. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been such a great conversation. I've definitely learned a lot. So I'm sure our listeners will love it as well. No, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. You can find us on social media at Her and Boss Podcast. 
and please also make sure to subscribe or follow us so that you don't miss out on the rest of season two. We have some really exciting topics coming up from women in gaming and life as a CEO to how to set goals and respond to microaggressions. See you soon.